are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Church of the Larger Fellowships weekly online podcast. We are The View, and we're thrilled that you all are here to join us. Um, Today, we have members of the Commission on Institutional Change to talk about the uh, forthcoming report that that, uh, will um, help rock our UU world. I'm excited about it. I can't wait. Um, but first, we have our regular check-in from our hosts. I am Christina Rivera. I'm coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia. It's beautiful. We're um, very excited to see spring sprung. It's also causing some uh, tension with social distancing, but uh, we're just all kind of hanging in there. We are part of the um, set of governors that are going to start to try and reopen next week or actually this week. Um, So we'll see how that goes. Meg, how's it going in your world? Hi, Meg Riley here in Minneapolis. We're still um, pretty much on homestay till middle of the month, although they just yesterday opened up things like dentists, which I'm excited about having had a couple of postponements there. Um, But yeah, it's, it's been gorgeous here. It's been I have a good friend I talked to in Chicago. It's consistently warmer here, and that's just weird. Um, and yeah, I, my garden is about half mulched, and I've got the cold weather stuff in. But the little stuff I still have to bring in at night and take out in the day, like a little day camp. Aisha, how are you out there? <laughs> Killer. <laughs> yes, I'm Aisha Hauser in Seattle, Washington, the state that brought you the first confirmed cases of COVID now brings you murder hornets. You're welcome. So it is sunny and spring and we're just, I, I did, thank you, Jude Geiger, a friend of mine, uh, let me know that praying mantises attack murder hornets. So I will be looking up how to get those. So that's me, Michael. Good morning, everyone. Greetings from Peekskill, New York. Um, just a little north of New York City here and uh, things are, it's a beautiful, beautiful spring day. I, I hope to spend some time outside this afternoon. Um, and. Uh, I don't know what there is to say. I have praying mantis eggs in my garden. I wish I could get you some. Um, But the praying mantises are thriving around my house. And so the murder hornets will not come near me. And uh, my governor is smarter than your governor. Uh, (laughs) Except maybe Leslie, who's in California. (laughs) I'm smart too. I'm Washington. The West Coast Um, people got it going. And uh, we're not reopening anything in New York for a little while. And we have a, a seven, there are seven criteria that have been set here in the Northeast for starting a four part process to reopen. And none of the 10 regions of New York state meet all seven criteria right now. So at some point, like maybe two or three weeks from now, the Adirondack mountains might reopen. Um, but that's like, you know, Canada reopening. Um, that's not, that's so, such a different world from where I am that it's, it's like might as well be a different state. Um, 
and life is okay here at Raymond Street Elementary School, where I, I am the sole first grade special education teacher. Good morning, Antonia. How are things where you are? I'm doing well. It looks like we have sun, so we are going to make sure everybody gets some vitamin D today um, outside because they got to go outside. Um, <laughs> we, I thought we had a governor that was about keeping people safe, but we are starting a restricted reopening tomorrow because we need to retail shop curbside, I guess. Um, so we are holding it down in the fort and um, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But other than that, things are going pretty well. We have converted our dining room into a cubicle station. They will know how to work in cubicles by the time they get to be adults, it seems. And I am here on YouTube and I'm uh, getting your information that you want to ask to the host and to the guest. So please talk to us. We'll be very happy to hear from you. And um, this should be a very lively informational view today. Back to you, Aisha, Christina. Christina. <laughs> so um, for our UU Roundup this week, I wanted to give a shout out to all of the um, candidating processes that are going on in congregations. Shout outs to the congregations that are calling ministers, um, uh, religious educators, like there's all, all sorts of um, calling and settling and hiring going on right now. And also just a shout out to the folks that are part of that process that don't quite make a match. It's really, really hard. And um, trying to do it uh, virtually in most cases is also extraordinarily um, difficult. So just, you know, Keep the faith, y'all. It's gonna happen. Um, I saw one. I think my first virtual online ordinations uh, this week, and it was beautiful and um, and sad too. Like you know, there was there was moments of of loss and grief to not be able to be there. And finally, I'll do a shout out to all the bridgers. My sons uh, bridged this weekend um, in a bittersweet virtual sitting on our sofa watching it and um, that's going to be you know the reality for a lot of our bridgers and it's just a precursor to the non-graduations um, that a lot of these uh, young people are going to have and it's it's just really hot, rough. I, I notice in our house it's really hitting us um, this week how, how rough it is. So just lots of love to y'all. Um, it's, it's hard and we know it's hard and it's okay to feel it. Meg, you wanted to um, circle us to UU the vote. Well, I wanted to mention uh, UU Share the Check, which is coming out also of the UUA, encouraging those of us with the privilege of having enough to donate the $1,200 stimulus check to marginalized communities. And so it's hashtag UU Share the Check, and you can register and, and share where you're giving it, because they really want to get a sense of what we're doing together. And they have some suggested organizations, including the bailout folks that we had on last week, which as you know, is my choice. And what I'm doing with my stimulus check is uh, just in time for Mother's Day, reuniting some families. But you know, for some people, I know it's impossible and that money is life-saving. So uh, those folks should hold on to it. But for those of us with more privilege, 
it's an opportunity to, to share what we've got, understanding as we do at the cellular level right now, how radically interconnected we are as a people. So I wanted to lift that up. I also wanted to just shout out, uh, CLF did a fundraiser Tuesday for Give Tuesday Now. I don't know, some gimmicky thing. I just want to thank all the people who gave. We had a $6,000 goal and we actually made $8,000, which is fabulous. As I said, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave and I really want to leave this in good hands for the people who come in. So, so that felt, just felt really good. The generosity of people. I just want to thank anybody who did, who did give to that and who supports the CLF and programs like this. So, so thank you. That's what I got. Thanks everyone. Anyone else? I, I don't think there was. Okay. So we are thrilled to welcome back uh, members of the Commission on Institutional Change. Today we have Sir LeBaire Jr., who is a board trustee at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Akron. Yay! And on owner of Conjure Comics, a comic book publisher focused on justice, liberation, and equity. I have to check that out. I did not know that. I, for some reason, I didn't read that in your last bio. I am so all over that. I can't wait. <laughs> um, we have uh, Dr. Elias Ortega, who is president of Meadville Lombard Theological School and a member of the commission. And we have the Reverend uh, Leslie Takahashi, who serves as lead minister at the Mount Diablo Unitarian Universalist Church in Walnut Creek, California, and is chair of the commission. And she's also co-author of The Ark of the Universe is Long. If y'all haven't had a chance to read that, it's like just one of the best reads that you can get right now in Unitarian Universalism. And um, we'll give you just some base work for, you know, what the work that the commission is doing. And um, you can kind of see how that arc is, um, is shifting. And um, in a little while, I think uh, Reverend Dr. Natalie Fenmore might be joining us. She's minister at the a minister for lifespan religious education at the congregation in Shelter Rock. And she's a former president of Loretta. I uh, I think that brings us to Sarah. You're going to um, launch us, are you not? Yes, and good morning. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I'm drawn to open with a quote, and it actually comes from a post uh, from Reverend Leslie about our kind of lack of collective mourning. And it felt really appropriate uh, today as I looked over the numbers um, of the death rate within the black community is, uh, due to COVID-19, despite make, despite being only 13% of the US population, we are 60% of the coronavirus deaths. And I know that many of us have people who are sick. Many of us have lost uh, friends and family members to this. And I know there's a lot of people in our community as you use and in our wider community who are really suffering. So I just like to lift up this quote from Ossie Davis, actor, director, poet, and civil rights activist. We have been to hell and back again, and death cannot have the final word. So I've been invited today to talk about our report and about our process uh, leading into it. And it really began 
a starting point for us, I should say, was a convening hosted in Atlanta in 2017 by UUA co-presidents, Reverend Sophia Betancourt, Dr. Leon Spencer, and Reverend William Singford. This is the first convening designed to capture many of the ideas that have been readily available and yet ignored about how to combat white supremacy culture and the marginalization of Black, Indigenous voices and voices of color within the many expressions of our faith. What was asked for at the convening was a process of truth and reconciliation. And the Commission on Institutional Change has served as the beginning of that process. So this was a board mandated commission. Uh, we had a we were originally given a charge of two years, which was then extended to three. Uh, and our process has been, first we did a call for testimony. So we issued a call in first, and then we actually repeated that several times throughout our, uh, our work to start collecting data. So this came from people of color, uh, from uh, those who are white allies, those who are, uh, we, we took, uh, a call from folks who maybe felt that they were uh, either on the opposite end of the spectrum and feeling that this work was necessary. And we really just wanted to, to do as wide of a range of, uh, to gather as much information as possible. We did focus groups, which were convened at the 2018 and 2019 General Assemblies. And these were designed to elicit feedback and kind of give people a chance to really talk out what their experiences were within their own congregations. In the fall of 2018, under the leadership of consultant Melvin Bray, we convened a multi-day gathering of those who had been leading work on equity, inclusion, and diversity. Um, this was our collaboratory. It was one of the best experiences that I think I've had. It was a great opportunity to kind of pick the brains of those in our faith who are really working on this and have been have really put so much of their lives into it. We uh, also contracted an outside organization called Visions Inc. And we asked them to do a, a really intense audit of just our, or our association's uh, leadership structures and really the systems that we had in place. And then out of that, we used kind of a really cool uh, program called Deduce, which is a plat cross-platform research program for social science. And we gathered all of this information, which amounted to over 650 pages of transcripts and 80 plus hours of audio video interviews. And that has become, uh, after all these years, our report, which is, I would say, a, and it repeats it again in the report, that it is a summation of some of our work. Of course, uh, the complete range of our history and experiences can't be captured within just one book. However, we feel that this is as thorough uh, a report that we could put out. And we hope that it answers the, the call and especially the need for a guide on change. Um, one of the biggest obstacles we faced as a commission was the weariness uh, that people had within our congregations, within our, our faith community around around the kind of continued conversation and continued process over the last few decades around changing these systemic oppressions. This is not our first rodeo, uh, and yet we hope that this report can, can maybe be uh, our, our, last, our last attempt at 
And we, we want to see that this becomes a guide for moving forward, both within these times, uh, and that, that it can be used as a tool for those folks who are within their congregations who are struggling for change and also for our leaders, uh, the incoming uh, administrations that, that they would have this as a reference. Because one of the things we found too is that the information, and I guess I should say the, uh, the data was lacking in some areas and around just the experiences of people of color within our, our religious professionals, um, the rates of, of hiring and firing and all kinds of things. So we, we really hope that this becomes a very strong kind of core document to be used. And I also wanna point out the just great and effective leadership of our co-moderators, Mr. Barb Grieve and Elandria Williams and the wonderful board of trustees who did so much work uh, to push this report through. And of course, uh, our president, Reverend Susan, and our vice president, Carrie McDonald. Um, their leadership has been just very, has been courageous, uh, historical. And I think that as you use, I, we should all be very, uh, very proud of that. You all might not be able to um, answer this question yet, um, but I, I want to reflect back what I heard you say, sir, in terms of that, that this isn't our first rodeo. And um, often we hear from the religious professional of color community that we're, and, and the UUPO, BIPOC community, that we're still talking about the same things that we've been talking about for decades. Like we're still dealing with some of the same issues that we've been dealing with decades. And we've had reports over time that have, you know, pointed these things out. And so I'm wondering how you all envision this report being used differently or making a different kind of impact, because I think it, it's poised to do that. And I've heard from you all um, a little bit about that. And, and so, like I said, it, it might not be a conversation for today's show, maybe the last time you're here, but but would you all have, have something? I mean, I would love to chime in on that and invite other folks too as well. But I think that's a really important point, Christina, because, um, you know, one of the things we said to the board um, uh, when we met with the board two weekends ago was that, you know, this is not just, we, we have worked, I think, I, I think we can honestly say um, that we have worked as diligently at this as you could, we could do. And that doesn't mean we've done a perfect job, but it means we've been, we've taken this very seriously. However, with that being the case, this is not just our report. This is the report of the, you know, 1100 basically people who participated in this, some of whom at great personal cost, because to go back through the events that some people retraced for us, it is actually about, um, and, and you're aware of this um, personally, but you know, it's about re-stimulating trauma. And there's actually a physical, like we had people get physically sick after talking to us. We had people have, have other issues, you know, uh, mental health and other issues after talking to us and retracing things that were difficult. So then we went back and tried to make our protocols more trauma-informed. You know, I mean, there, there are things that we had to do, but even with that, people paid a huge cost to participate and to name their truths yet again, for some of them, for multiple times. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make this be too heavy, but I do want to say that the report, ironically, you know, is really what, what, 
keeps me up at night and um, is the idea that we could not honor our, we personally put our integrity on the line saying we will make sure that this report doesn't just sit on a shelf, you know, that, that this, you know, and, and there are um, over 90 specific actions in this report. And we're not saying that every one of those specific actions is going to happen, but there are some of them we've put a lot of time into. And I think what's important to make this go forward are a couple things. Um, so I am going to answer that and I'll answer it every show we're on if you want, because I think it's so important, you know, like I'll just keep saying it over again. Um, my dogs are certainly tired of hearing me say it. Um, but um the thing that I would say is that, you know, we need to make sure that there is an ongoing structure similar to the commission, maybe not at the resource level, but something that is both doing the monitoring and the proactive engagement and partnership. I mean, that's something that I think is really important. Sir mentioned the administration and the board, and we have worked with them in ongoing partnership, not just sitting, observing, and then issuing a report at the end. We did choose to issue a report because we realized we had amassed a lot of real news as opposed to fake news and it was important to document that and so we put it in this report but but it is important that we have some kind of body that keeps monitoring that and it's also important that we have ongoing conversation as those of us that are phasing out as of july 1st that we have ongoing conversation with those who will implement this to make sure that they hear the reasons why we came down on certain things because we took this collective brain trust um, from the 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 Black, Indigenous, people of color community, and we put it together in this report, but we did it with some discernment, and there are reasons for that, and it's really important that people hear those, take it seriously. You know, the irony is, this really is, as we said the last time we were here, kind of the blueprint for what we should be doing in this world we're in now, and the irony is the crisis that we're in, where everyone's just trying to, like, get the basics done, could mean that we actually ignore this report, which would be, which would be really a moral travesty, honestly, so... I might have strong feelings about this, you know. I think we need to have strong feelings about it. And, and I really appreciate the integrity with which the commission is holding, um, you know, not wanting the report to sit on the shelf. And I think that, you know, the, an outcome that would be, yeah, a travesty would be that, that, that it's, that you all feel like you're the only ones that have that responsibility because um, it's every UU's responsibility to make sure that this report doesn't sit on the shelf. And um, the commission has put, you know, just everything, you know, personally on the table. Um, we've had, you know, commissioners that have, have, you know, been there the entire time. We've had commissioners who've had to, you know, leave for various reasons and, um, you know, to not honor the sacrifice that, that all the commissioners have made by leaving it up to you all <laughs> to make sure that this just doesn't sit on the shelf would just be not in keeping with our faith. I mean, I think that's for me the the bottom line of why we need we need folks to really pick up on this when it is released and um, and make sure that 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 they are carrying it forward. Um, we are. Uh, Unitarian Universal Association of Congregations, and those congregations are responsible for the covenant that we hold within each other. So um, we have a couple of questions in the chat um, that come up each time. Um, so if we can just say again how the uh, report will be distributed. So we have um, also been 
very careful stewards of the money that was given to us to implement this report. And one of the things that we have money now that we will be spending will be to make sure that a physical copy of this report will be sent to every congregation. It will also be available in other forms. And right now, I mean, ironically, we were trying to make sure that a physical copy of this report would be sent to every congregation. And now that's really not very helpful because it'll sit in a mailbox in a lot of places, we hope. But um, but we also um, will be releasing the report. Um, I, Sir and I spent the weekend doing one more final big read of the report, and it is now really close to going off to be printed. Um, so there will be um, some form, we're, we're talking now about how to release it in a non-physical report way, but it will be available, um, but we hope just before GA, and then we'll be talking about it more at GA. So, um, but a physical copy will be at every congregation. And it's really important for people that are advocates, allies, accomplices, you know, BIPOC people to know that there is a copy somewhere in your structure. So you should find out where that is. And there's a question in the chat too about whether it could be um, made um, available from video video audio formats, and I think that's something we definitely need to look into. So thanks for that suggestion. Also, I'd want to add that the uh, actual testimonies we took in, those themselves will be uh, held from the public as they are sensitive kind of personal information. So the recordings, documents, and other materials will be held for a period of five years, after which the data will be available for academic use. And those would be like the specific uh, testimonies that were shared. I wanted to um, a, say I was part of that October meeting that, that was um, extraordinary in many, many ways. I, I wonder, and this is a question, if one of the differences between this report and say, other um, reports or commission on appraisal reports in the past is the deep dive and how personal interviews were much more um, it was wide I mean you cast a wide wide net and I guess the question and maybe it's a hope is that will make a difference because uh, you know in addition to <clears throat> the, the, you know hundreds of other things that you all did but I wonder if that if 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 hopefully hearing from, because the other thing is people were afraid because the system was set up to punish people, we know this, who spoke out, right? And and that was, I, I think, the intention of the commission after tw the 2017, the events of the spring of 2017, is to name, people need to be able to talk about what happened to them without fear of retribution. Um, so I don't know where my question went. Oh, the, the do you think the personal, the, the fact that people were given an opportunity to tell their story, will that make a difference? We hope so, right? I think we, we hope so, we, we aim for that. I think, um, and for, for me personally, I can say that this cut in different ways. Uh, one generated a lot more conversation around folks, both not only in, in folks who were willing to step forward, right, and, and share the, the stories with us, either publicly or privately, uh, but also the conversation around folks who were public around having been done this before once or twice and nothing happened, right, that entered into the public memory, right, of some of those conversations, as well as those who are saying they were not going to participate for the reasons that you, right, the fear for, for the backlash. Um, and we, as best as possible, right, we, doc we documented uh, those instances as, as well, right, if not attached to people. Uh, necessarily, but have that record uh, in our files. 
I think what that also generated among uh, among us is just a larger conversation that is implanted in the system as a memory, right? So now you have a, um, one, of, one of the, I think collectively the commission grieve is really finding out the extent of the folks that we have lost uh, to this reality, right? Um, over a thousand folks of color over, the, over the, the last 20, 20, 30 years or so, which said the face of the movement will be very different when we, when we think about that lost. Um, and, and now some of those stories are back circulating again among us right as a, as a historical memory uh that we can then you know pass on to uh the current and next generation as a conversation of change um i think that will have an impact i hope too that folks can uh share and and something that really inspired me uh working on the report was that this is sacred work our lived experiences are part of our sources uh and these lived experiences that folks brought to the table and shared with us are, are deep and from the heart. And uh, the, I hope that we can honor that with, with the change and that folks can see that sharing as, um, as part of the sacred. And I use that as, as an atheist. That's one of my, you know, our storytelling uh, and our, our capacity to tell stories is such a, such a key part of us being human that I hope folks can, can really dig, dig into how important that work was. Well, and I think that um, just to reflect back to you some some observations from someone, I mean, I have not been directly involved in this process, but I'm involved in lots of places around Unitarian Universalism. And so just, um, I think, it, I, hope, I hope it feels good to hear that the way in which you all have bridged the personal stories and the institutional change, um, I think has been really powerful to many people that I've come into contact with. Um, that it could have just been institution, it just could have just been personal stories or it could have just been institutional. And you really, you connected them in a way that I think is very powerful. Um, and I haven't read the report yet, but, um, you know, I've just been appointed to the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, for example, and we are uh, eagerly awaiting the section of your report that has recommendations for changes to Ministerial Fellowship and ready to implement them. Um, and so I came into a system that felt that where the people felt listened to and engaged with and inspired to do the work that you were about to task us with doing, um, which um, I think is important. And I, I, I hope that I, I wanted to give you that feedback just because um, there are people inspired to do the work that you're about to ask us to do, even though we haven't read the actual report yet. <laughs> it's hard to read the actual report because we're still getting it gone. <laughs> and my future self wants to just say that for me, um, and Charles coming into the co-moderator position next, we're really seeing this as the blueprint of what we're going to be doing. I mean, that I think without it, we would feel much more hesitant to walk in, but it feels like the, you know, the board, as you say, is committed and the administration. And um, to me, you know, last GA, when uh, Reverend Marta, who we see is watching today, shout out to Marta, called up all the leaders who are people of color to the stage. I just, I just wept. I thought, you know, we're in a different time. Uh, 
we're, we're in a different time than we have been. And we have a shot. We have a shot at this. And uh, if, if we don't screw it up again, um, we really could we really could become who we say we want to become. And that is so exciting to me. Yeah, I think um, leading to that, one of the questions um, that we have in the chat is, are some of the 90 actions um, that Reverend Leslie referenced ones that can be in, implemented at the congregational level? Can my congregation's eighth principal task force look at it as a compass? And yeah, I just see huge nods going on right now from the commissioners. I can't imagine that there wouldn't be uh, multiple points of entry for, for our congregations. Yeah, and we actually went through and then after we did, we, we actually went through and made sure that there were very clear on ramps for every one of our 10 areas of recommendations that are congregationally focused and we didn't we didn't label them as such but it's pretty clear where that is and there's a whole section on congregations there's a whole section on hospitality and i think that's really important you know and i want to take a step back if i could just for what to what michael said about the bridge between personal stories and systemic change because i think this is a place where we get caught as unitarian universalists over and over again so i just want to take this moment because I think this is one of the things that will matter about implementation and that is that um, you know we we are really good at this is one of the reasons people didn't want to tell their stories again that we'll hear people's stories will will and I don't want to be dismissive I think it's a real response it's a human response will be you know we'll we'll hear them we'll be empathetic you know and you know there'll, there'll be tears there'll be you know self-recriminations but then nothing systemically changes right the systems stay the same and just in the same way that we want to be personally, like we want our institutions to be personally responsible to individuals. We want, you know, we want Elias to be the person of color to whom we are responsible for. Like we, we've got to move it to a different level where we have structural accountability and we have institutional accountability to groups of people that are in our democratic process electing their own leadership and not like Elias because we know Elias you know, or Leslie or Asia, because we know, you know, so it's a really different thing to move. The personal stories are important because that's how we were able to see the trends and where the levers are so important, but we can't get stuck there because we get stuck there and it becomes like this sort of trauma porn thing where we're just like, you know, exploiting other people's stories, but not doing anything structurally. And that we cannot afford to do anymore. I want to name that throughout um, when you all started a blog, and I, I can't pinpoint right now when you started it. So that to me, I'm so excited for this book because I've read every single blog post you put out. I sent them to the board. I sent them to colleagues to say that you know, these blog posts are both um, naming the meta, but also saying, and here's what you can do in your congregations. And so you, for those waiting for the book or can't wait, go to the commission's blog and every single blog post is on point, is helpful, and says, here's what you can do. So that was, thank you for that genius, um, because it off to me, it was like, oh, okay, this is where this is headed. And it feels, it, A, it feels, it already felt different, but now with COVID, for those who were like, oh, change is glacial, well, apparently change isn't when you have a pandemic on your hands, and we could then do things that we never thought we could do on a dime. So we could bring change if we want to, um, we, but we have the, where there's a will, there's a way, right? So I also wanted to lift up your blog, which is excellent. Elias is back, and um, Elias, you were going to just recap us from our last time, just to bridge where we were last time around um, a little bit about 
about theology and like in some of our, you know, kind of takeaways around theology, just a couple of the points just to kind of reground us because we want to always ground all of our work in our theology. That's been one of our core operating principles as a commission. And then we've got a couple other areas we thought we'd throw out there and just see where people where people want to go. But I'll go to Elias. Yeah, I, I um, before going to that, I posted on, on the chat um, the link to the blog. Um, it is in the UUA, uh, under UUA governance slash committees CIC blog, uh, but it's there. I mean, there, there is so much that we can say about, and particularly I can say about the, the theological piece. Um, and and I'm, 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 I will try not to get too, too excited and stay to the point, but what, what I think, what, what I find, uh, what we found challenging uh, in, in this particular context that we do in the work uh, is that as, as a body of faith, we have a particular kind of allergy to doing theological thinking and practice, right? There, there is something about that, that engagement um, that we find it uncomfortable. And I would say primarily in our conversations, one of the things that we keep running into uh, is, is the reality that a good part of the theological legacy that we have in terms of um, tradition, either sermons, right, or or uh, manifestos and the like um, are largely either Christian, right, uh, sort of Christian-centric, right, uh, Christian Unitarians uh, or Christian um, Universalists or humanists, right, in nature. Uh, so uh, after the 60s, right, you have very few kind of theological engagement with the tradition, right, and and uh, the models of operation has been because it is either too Christian, right, or it is too humanist. So therefore, we don't engage either one of them, uh, right. We have what we have to do. Right for for the MFC, uh, right for those looking into the ministry, we have some of the pieces that, that we do in terms of the Renaissance curriculum, but by and large, right, we don't we don't go back to articulating what does this principle, this tradition means for the world today within our own circuit journeys, uh, right. That requires a, a different kind of uh, spiritual muscle that we have not exercised as much. Instead, what we have done is is really uh, center the self, right, center the individual and the individual spiritual journey. Right, as a measure against we validate our faith experiences as a community, right? Uh, and that has become, uh, in some ways, we have I'm gonna dare to say we have impoverished ourselves, right? Uh, um, as a tradition, uh, because we are not sharpening our we are not sharpening our uh, spiritual muscles, right? Our intellectual muscles, our practice against a tradition. And again, this is not uh, to to fall into tra um, traditionalism, right? And say, you know, the old folks were always right and correct as doctrine. No, no, no. Uh, it's as a way for us to to think through right what are the challenges and the pieces that force our thinking or thought about to important to communicate over time for us then to engage in you and, and let me tell you you know for, for then for for our context these are some of the ways in, in which that manifested itself right they call to beloved community right what does that actually mean in our community theologically right and spiritually to say beloved community right uh, it is it is the thing that we throw out there right oftentimes but in the context of how does it challenges to change, right? It, it is not clear, right? E even the principles, right? A, a lot of our folks do not understand the, the, the principle as being, uh, I don't want to say the necessarily theological mandate, right? But theological ideas for us to, to wrestle as a community, right? Um, in fact, most of you, so I'm going to just say, don't oftentimes can name the seven principles, right? Uh, we know the free and responsible search, right? And the democratic principle, otherwise, right, false and anxious for the other ones. Um, and I think it's important, right, for us as a faith tradition, right, to, to understand, to become theological literate, right, um, in our community. And, and the, the kind of the theological literacy that, we're gonna, that we talk about 
is really understanding kind of faith in action. Like what is the impact of how do we live our faith and the grounding of our faith for how do we shape our communities? And that entails both, you know, that entails um, historical knowledge, right? And say the bookish pieces, but it also entails, right, the engagement with concrete problems. Um, for example, we don't have doctrines of sin, right, and, and suffering, right? So how do we talk about salvation, right? And uh, a renewal, right? And accountability without some of that language, right? It becomes difficult, right, in, in our movement to do so. It's not impossible, right? But what is the language that we can use to hold each other into accountability when we miss the mark, right? Um, language of rituals, right? The ritual practices as, as a movement in this particular time, right? We don't, we don't have those things, right? We don't have a, a books of common prayer, whatever shape that may be. Um, I've been looking through some of the old uh, um, Unitarian Book of Prayers, right? They have a uh, beautiful sections of uh, how to mourn the dead, right? We don't we don't have that, and and in our time that is so needed, um, and and I'm there to say, right? Some of our folks will be really uncomfortable, right, by engaging those those texts that actually have them, uh, because they are too Christian centric, right, in, in the language of discourse. So then we have to engage them anew, um, right, to to have to uh, really equip our community to be able to do the faith work that we have to do to sustain and to nourish um, who we are as a faith community, not only for today, right, but uh, for those that we're nurturing for tomorrow. So to, to, to recap, I think what, what we really intended to do in this engagement is really to put uh, the understanding that we are a faith community, right, and that we have that theology and the experience of the sacred really should ground our work, not only worship practice, but also in terms of justice and transformation, right? Those things are interconnected. Uh, so how do we connect them, not only in speech, but also in action, right, in service, uh, and how do we guide our relationships? And I just put in the chat um, some of the, like we have a takeaway section at the end of every chapter in the book and um, so in the report. And so I put a couple of the um, takeaways from the theology section that that highlight what Elias was just saying, because I think it's important for us to keep remembering like, and one of them that I think is really important is that freedom and individuality are not our most important values that we have to offer the world, especially not in these times when we need to think about the worth and dignity of all and our interdependence with one another. And that that is a really different way to look at our, at the foundation of our faith. Um, so I think those are important as well. And um, one of the other areas that we were hoping to talk about today is the area of um, like that, you know, kind of feels like what we are having to make decisions about every moment in this time, right? Which is how to live our values. Like what, and that has to do with, you know, when do we open up? When do we do what? Who do we respect? Who do we mourn? Who do we honor, right? Um, and, you know, so I was was hoping that Sir might tell us a little bit of some of the takeaways from that area of um, what we have a section called Living Our Values, which focuses on that piece. Yeah, definitely. And I think, of course, this is a, a perfect time uh, for you to really live out into the world. Uh, I think that so some of our takeaways, one of them was we need to ground our work in diversity, equity and inclusion. I think that this is especially crucial right now. Um, as we can see, our world is extremely interdependent. So now we all have information on how, say, defunding uh, healthcare in another country may affect our own country, for example. So we see how these inequities uh, cause this kind of chaos and uh, this kind of instability in our world. And it's extremely important for us to remember that just as our uh, second principle calls us to do, 
justice, equity, compassion, and human relations is key. Uh, if we are grounded, again, even in our first principle, the worth and dignity of every person, what does that say to this moment of who are we, who are we counting as in our community? Who are we counting as uh, worthy? As, who are we saying is disposable? Um, so this is a perfect opportunity for us as you use to put forth our principles as uh, guidance for our actions. Um, I think that our, so one of our other takeaways is we need accountability to organizations. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about uh, just in our, as Leslie said, in our daily lives, who are, who are we accountable to? Um, we have to ask ourselves that both as people who are, you know, everybody is on a spectrum of, of privilege. You know, myself as a cis hetero uh, uh, man, what, who am I accountable to when they're not in the room? Is something I always ask myself. You know, will I allow someone that I know to misgender someone else that I know without speaking up and saying something? Um, so who are we accountable to has become a very uh, kind of a key question for me. And I think that our, so one of our other takeaways is anti-oppression work must be a building block of all justice work. I think that this is a thing that is both on one hand, to me, very, very simple. And yet I understand the complexities of it when folks, uh, they bring up issues such as climate change and they talk about, uh, you know, we had a kind of a controversy and one of the first GAs I ever went to where they, chose, I think it was combating a uh, corrupt democracy. And that was not understood to have as many racial nuances when we think about voter suppression and all these different things. So I think it's important for us as you use, uh, being a somewhat, uh, I, I like to think of us as a somewhat intellectually driven faith. I think we have to sometimes ask ourselves, what data are we privileging and what data are we ignoring? When we have, clear data that shows us that the number one and first folks affected by climate change uh, by these things like voter suppression are black, indigenous, people of color, uh, then we have to understand that when we talk about justice work as how it relates to everything, but this, that many, that we have to sort of, uh, we have to privilege the experience of those who are most affected. And we have to see those experiences as a guide for how do we make life better for everyone. Um, so I think this is this is a time that both challenges us and yet it gives us an opportunity to really lead out what's special about Unitarian Universalism, what's, what can be effective about it. Yeah, I think um, particularly what you said about the the ways in which we look at whose lives we value and who we, we feel is expendable is um, super important right now. You know, you mentioned, you know, what healthcare systems are we valuing and which are we defunding and, um, and trying to get people to understand that from a place of faith and covenant as, as the theology of we're not doing this because of the benefit that we get and the security that we get knowing that other healthcare systems are strong. Um, we're doing this because as faith and covenant, we know we have a responsibility to those individual people to make sure that they are healthy and strong. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a, 
a shift, you know, for us, I think, as a faith to really live into that theology of if we're truly concerned about the other, um, then we're concerned about them no matter what. Like there aren't, there aren't times in which their um, worth and value and dignity are less or more. They, they just are. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why I, I love that, that you all are grounding your faith or your work in, in our theology, because I think, you know, you, I think you had put in the takeaways that, that faith and covenant are not dirty words. And I would, I would frame it as they're actually beautiful words and they're words that we can um, truly be proud of and be, and be um, grounded in and, and feel good about. Um, and I think when we get there, it, it will feel good and it will feel good that we're not just trying to take care of somebody else, but because of what it does for us. So I, I have a question about, I guess, strategy, um, which maybe is its own show. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Thankfully, you're coming back every other week for a little while. Um, it, it seems to me I'm sitting here going, yes, yes, yes. I am like on board with what what <laughs> what I'm hearing you say, but I knew that I would be. Um, and uh, it seems to me that that essential to living our values is actually articulating what our values are. Um, and uh, I see freedom and individual individuality are not our most important values. And I am like, yes, like I've been preaching that since I started preaching. Right, I'm good with that. And I am envisioning the people who are gonna go, what? Sure they are. <laughs> and um, so I'm wondering, do you have in your report ways to address that? Or are we just gonna start from the place of accepting that freedom and individuality are not our most important values? Like what's the strategy um, here? Or, or is that not your job? Because that's okay too. Like not everything has to be your job. I think it's a both and. It's all of our jobs, honestly. It's like a multi and, not even both. <laughs> so, um, but I, I think it's really critical. But that is actually why we, so, um, you know, the, the whole point about like, um, you know, faith and covenant are not dirty words. Well, that, we, we know that. And yet we're also speaking to those people who think they are, right? Who think any traditional religious, which we tried very hard by taking the data that we had and using the methodologies that um, that Elias led us in with the with the using the tools that we had to analyze the data, we tried very hard to actually put forward information, right? So I think we have to be really clear. And I think this time of false news really shows it to us. We're guilty of false news in our own ranks, folks. And we know that, right? So how do we start using our discernment to understand, like to truly look at the patterns and say, these are actually things that are true, even if they challenge they, if they challenge me and if they make me uncomfortable or if they take away something that, you know, I'm really deeply committed to or if they touch an old religious wound, we haven't even talked about that. But I think part of making this thing work is to actually have as part of our congregations regular practices to address the religious wounding that a lot of people have come into our midst with and have like we need religious education or educators to be coming up with even new um, ways to look at that healing our religious past stuff. You know, I run that curriculum twice a year in my congregation every year, the adult ed curriculum around healing religious wounds. And we still, like, I'll tell you, we need more, right? And 
we need to not be just acting out of that woundedness and let our discernment actually be discernment. And because sometimes we mask our woundedness as discernment and that's not okay in these times, right? It's really important. I would say briefly too, um, I'm reminded of a, a great article by Ibram Kendi uh, recently talking about the difference between the freedom to harm and the freedom to be from harm. I think that uh, it, there is a, I, I don't know if I could call up the exact page or where it is in our, in our report. Yeah, we do lift up uh, some of these issues when we talk about like congregational polity and what does that really mean? Um, and I think a lot of it, I, I found such a great summation in that quote that we are really talking about when we, when we talk about individual freedom, who, again, who is that freedom for? Uh, who gets to hold that freedom? Who do we see as as uh, as worthy of it, as uh, entitled to it? Um, and then, what is that freedom that? Um, and if we have this individual freedom, does that also mean that our communities should be places free from harm? Leslie, what do you mean? By, um, I'm sorry. No, what I was going to add to that uh, into this conversation is that we we oftentimes fall into the trap of um, idolatrizing individualism, right? To the point that we uh, do not hold individuals accountable to their impact within the system, right? And I think we can we can talk about the the ways in which individuals have held congregations hostage for for decades, right? And, and we dare not to have the conversation, right? Because we prioritize. Right, the, the individual that might feel hurt or uncomfortable uh, versus the wellness of the community. Sorry, I was talking at the same time and that, that is such an important thing. I see that over and over in so many environments. But Leslie, I didn't quite understand your point about sometimes our woundedness masks as discernment. Can you, that's intriguing to me. Can you say more? I mean, I think that we use um, like Sir said, I mean, we're, we are a, a culture that can be overly intellectualized because we have had deep wounding either to our identity, like, and I mean, across the board, I'm not just talking about, in this case, people with marginalized identities. We have a lot of people that come into our midst because, you know, who they were as a person who asked questions or as a person that was data-driven or as a person who wanted to be a, a like a seeker in a different way was not honored in their growing up experience in their, you know, they, they were a woman who didn't want to be in a traditional role or they were, I mean, there's lots of different ways that this gets expressed, but that woundedness then gets cloaked in this, you know, kind of intellectualism and it, it disconnects us from our emotional lives, our spiritual lives. We say, Faith is a bad word. Why are we trying to reclaim religious language? Why are we talking about covenant? And I want to just say great comments in the chat about covenant, right? And about, yes, it's only a covenant if it actually is inclusive of everybody, not just a covenant that keeps people out to, to Sir's amazing point that was just made, right? So I do think that we are carrying a lot of woundedness and in that woundedness, we're masking it with intellectual theory and what's truth and what's re and the power of reason. And we're keeping ourselves away from tools we need to survive. I'm sorry, but, you know, to be a believer in the goodness of humankind right now, to me, is a lot more improbable than a believer in God. I just need to say, just want to say it from my personal vantage point. And I think that every time I go by a flagpole and those damn flags are all, you know, not at half mast, how many people, you know, more than 60,000 dead now. And 
we are not even, we're not even, we don't even have our flags at half mast, right? So I think we, we mask stuff that we shouldn't, we shouldn't do under that guise. Yeah, I think that comment about, um, about Covenant um, Nidhi uh, Achebe is uh, in the comments saying that she agrees that the uh, Covenant is not dirty as long as it includes um, the experience of Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, particularly when we try and craft covenants that say we will speak directly with the other person when we're in times of disagreement. Oftentimes that then puts the burden of, um, of that interaction on people who are being wounded. And, um, you know, I think that, 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 that covenantal agreement, that faith agreement has to, has to be inclusive enough that we understand that we first need to care for those who are harmed um, and then, you know, have accountability, have accountable discussions with those that are doing harm. Um, and, and I think that, that, yeah, I, I mean, that would be my experience of what I would see as beautiful covenant. And, and, and I want to add something um, because I think this is something that we, we encounter that oftentimes when folks speak about coming back into covenant, what they expect is that things will go back to normal without the, the repair of work. And sometimes part of the repair work is understanding that the relationship is broken, right? That there, there is forgiveness, but that does not mean that we will enter back into the same kind of relationship that before, right? Um, and who gets to decide that, right, as, is the one that suffered the impact the most, right? Well, and I think it's important also to name that, that part of white supremacy culture is equating you have harmed me with I disagree with you. Right. <laughs> so like it, we can speak directly with someone when we disagree with them is not the same as we have to confront people who are actively harming us. I mean, it's just, it's not the same. Um, and our systems want to make them the same because it, it minimizes the harm that's being done to, to marginalized people. Yeah. Cause I think that the idea that harm is something that makes you feel bad is is kind of rampant uh, right now and and you know when black indigenous people of color um communities are talking about harm we're talking about harm we're talking about physical harm we're talking about the safety of our children um you know we're talking about um the care of our elders we're we're talking about harm and we may be talking about it in the ways that it that is expressing itself in that moment. It may not be physical harm, but what we're saying is this is what allows that physical harm to happen in the wider world. And we need you all to circle, you know, to gather yourselves up and stop it. Um, because this is this is what perpetuates that ability for that real life endangering harm to occur. So thank you, Michael, for, for trying to, you know, help us, <laughs> help us talk about the difference that, that we're working to get. We've had great conversations today. Wow, wide ranging. Thank you so much. Um, the commission will be back in two weeks. Thank you. I think it's two weeks. Don't hold me to that. We'll, we'll check our schedule. But next week we have um, the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association here to representatives to talk about the uh, UUMA guidelines revisions that are being proposed. So we will have Melissa Carville-Zemer, Julica Herman de la Fuente, and Matthew Johnson here 
um, to have a great conversation about that. But until then, just blessings of hope and peace and health on everyone. And remember to check in on your neighbor. This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org. Thank you.